It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, it's Basha here and you're listening to The Slow Newscast, a weekly investigative show where we tell stories that really matter. Stories about what's driving the news, not breaking news. And this week, we enter the world of yoga a world that is actually a lot angrier than it might first appear, a world where yoga has become a weapon on an intensely political battlefield. I'm handing over to my colleague, Claudia Williams, who's going to tell you this week's story. Close your eyes. Just come and bring all the awareness to the breath. So deep breath in with me. Exhale through the mouth, just let it go. Relaxation, meditation, stretching, strength. That's really what comes to mind when I think of yoga. Something personal, benign, uncontroversial. Something my housemate does before work and I keep meaning to do more of. Good, keep the eyes closed. Turn the palms to face up towards the sky. And it is all of those things, but it's also a whole lot more. You all are kindly requested to follow the common yoga protocol postures by looking at the LED screen placed in front of you. There's a video I keep coming back to while working on this story. It's taken on the 21st of June 2015, the first ever International Day of Yoga. 35,000 people descended on the Indian capital, New Delhi, to mark the moment. And what I'm watching is essentially a mass yoga class. After addressing the crowd, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi walks to the front. He's wearing all white. Behind him is a sea of people stretching back into the distance, all the way down the historic avenue known as the Rajpath, all wearing white t-shirts and blue trousers and sitting on red and green yoga mats. Put your hands on your waist. Stand with your feet three to four feet apart. Over a loudspeaker, a voice guides them all through a series of poses or asana. Up to shoulder level. And although lots of the individual movements are familiar, Watching so many people stretch at the same time, move as one, it looks more like a static military parade. Knowing what I do now, that feels kind of apt. 
Place the right hand behind the right leg. When I started working on this podcast, I thought it would be about the origins of yoga. How the yoga you see in studios around the world might not actually be as ancient or even as strictly Indian as some people think. But it's actually a story about how yoga is being used. How it has been turned into a weapon on a political battlefield. I'm Claudia Williams, and in this week's Slow Newscast, I'm going to take you on a journey through yoga's explosion in the West, to billion-dollar gurus and mass yoga festivals, and to how yoga, so associated with peace and calm and relaxation, is being used by India's government to subtly push a nationalist agenda and drive communities apart. I hadn't had a haircut for 32 years. So it was down a bit, bit past my bum when I finally cut it. Dreadlocks. So I hadn't brushed it or cut it for 32 years. This is James Mallinson. So the reason I cut my hair is because my guru died in 2019. James is an academic who specialises in Sanskrit and classical Indian studies. He's telling me this in his new office on campus, surrounded by books and pictures waiting to be hung, and a kettle he's worried might be a little mouldy. Someone left that in. I dread to think what's in it, actually. I haven't even... <laughs> James leads the yoga department at SOAS University in London. He's a world expert on the tradition of Hatha yoga. That's broadly the type of physical practice you probably think of when you picture yoga, like sun salutations. He practices regularly, of course. I start off by doing actually a, a stomach churning exercise. There are these sort of cleansing practices that, uh, that are quite kind of energizing. I'll finish off with the, the peacock pose, which is when you lift your body so that it's parallel to the ground on your two hands. But off the yoga mat, James's main focus is studying manuscripts to try to understand the roots of yoga. What might seem like a fairly niche academic area is actually part of a hotly contested global conversation. Who owns yoga? James Mallinson is interested in the point at which yoga became more physical. That peacock pose he mentioned. Is the oldest known balancing pose that first appears in Sanskrit texts about a thousand years ago. And that's the first time we read about any yoga poses which are anything other than seated postures for meditation. It's, it's a pose that feels quite dangerous and scary when you first try it, but actually once you've mastered it, it's not, not too tricky. I've been doing it regularly for 30 years. How long did it take you to master it? Not, not very long. Headstand took longer, actually, I think, you know. The balancing on your head. Now, now it feels very easy and I can do that for as, pretty much as long as I want. But um, yeah, that was harder to learn, I think, because it's a bit more scary when you fall over. In fact, I still have a, a scar down my shin from when uh, I was teaching myself the headstand in my tiny room in Oxford when I was a Sanskrit undergrad and I fell over and scraped my shin along a little chest in the room. James's story starts before that tiny room in Oxford and the failed headstand. Back in 1988, before he became an expert in yoga and holy men, James did something that he admits was, at the time, very typical behaviour for a public school teenager like him. He went off on a gap year to India. At the end of the first trip, 
I ended up in Kashmir because I wanted to go and see this huge ice lingam, so the, the symbol of Shiva, and uh, it's in a cave at 4,000 metres up in the Himalayas. But my visa was running out, so I didn't have time to do the actual trek up there. But I ended up hanging out in a village where the trek begins with this group of holy men who were camped there waiting to go up themselves. And I think that was when I first really got the bug, got inspired by, um, by Indian, Indian holy men. And it is mainly men, to be honest. It's a pretty patriarchal system. They were just a sort of bunch of charismatic rogues at the same time you know they're then they're worshipped by the people even though they're they've got this sort of quite kind of nihilistic attitude they sort of represent some kind of anti-society they've turned their backs on the normal normal ways of life those roguish holy men as he calls them sent him down a path of academic research the reason that i ended up studying yoga texts is because i was looking for any kinds of texts that were anything to do with the living tradition of holy men that I'd spent so much time with in India. Pandemic aside, James has been back to India every year since that trip in 1988 to live with yogis and holy men. On a trip in 1992, he met his guru and the pair spent years wandering around together. That's how James learned yoga. He studied for a PhD in Hatha Yoga and then worked translating Sanskrit poems. Back in the 90s, in the UK, it was a pretty new area. But it's an academic field that has coincided with a boom in interest in yoga. And for James, that brought recognition, a position at SOAS, and, crucially, huge funding for a project that would challenge what he thought he knew about the origins of physical yoga. It wasn't necessarily his intention, but James's work disrupts a narrative that is spreading in yoga studios across the world of an ancient, unchanging practice, a concept that's now also being pushed by hardline Hindu nationalists. But more on that later. I'm Andrea Jan, Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University, Indianapolis, and I'm the author of two books on yoga, Selling Yoga, From Counterculture to Pop Culture, and Peace, Love, Yoga, The Politics of Global Spirituality. The politics of global spirituality. That's what drew me to Andrea. And because I wanted to get my head around yoga's recent history, to try to understand how yoga and politics have become increasingly tangled. So by the 1960s, yoga was highly visible around the world. In Western Europe, in North America, for example, you had people who were you know, highly aware of yoga. Uh, it was in the popular media. Far from the noise and pace of city life in the cool, clear air of Rishikesh, North India, Pathy News reports from the meditation retreat of Maharishi Maharishi Yogi, the man who, through transcendental meditation, is currently bringing peace of mind to the Beatles. Ringo enjoyed the peace of togetherness with Mrs. Ringo. Uh, the Beatles, for example, were experimenting with yoga. But uh, most people weren't actually doing yoga or buying yoga products. It wasn't until the 80s and then really the 90s that yoga becomes a part of pop culture um, in the sense that it's marketed to the masses and made readily available to yoga consumers. In the West, yoga blossoms from a relatively unknown hippie-ish practice to the fitness obsession of celebrities like Madonna and Sting. In the noughties, it really explodes around the world. 
By 2008, over 15 million people in the USA practice yoga. It becomes a multi-billion dollar industry. After all, those people need kit and classes. You've got everything ranging from very rigorous, athletically demanding forms of yoga to very gentle forms of yoga. Um, you have yoga that's marketed to the elderly and yoga for babies. You've got yoga that incorporates non-human animals like goat yoga and doga or dog yoga. Um, and you've got beer yoga, yoga that is really about uh, socializing and spending time with others in a really casual and non-demanding environment. And for a lot of people, the global boom in yoga in the late 20th century was a good thing. Some were getting fit, others were making money. But not for everyone. I'm in Angie Tiwari's South London yoga studio. Exhale, think about reaching forwards and down, forwards and down, as opposed to directly down. And grab hold of whatever you can. It might be your shins, it might be your Angie is a yoga, meditation and breathwork teacher and she's taking me through various poses and breathing exercises. She's doing a really good job of trying to make me feel comfortable, to think about what I'm doing rather than comparing myself to her, although I will admit that I keep opening my eyes to check I'm actually doing it right. So we could slow it right down. I'm new to this. You notice that the inhalation is passive, you're not really hearing an inhale, but it is happening. But for Angie, yoga has always been there, in the background. It's always been in my life through, like, the breathing technique we just did, Kapalabhati. My mum would teach my sister and I how to do that when we were growing up. But not like, we're going to do yoga now. It wasn't like that, because it was just so ingrained in, in our culture. But physical yoga practice, she only started doing that in her 20s. And I hated it, by the way. How can she do that pose and I can't? What am I doing in this practice? I'm so bored at the end. Like, this, is too, this is too slow for me. How else I felt uncomfortable was just, I never saw anyone that looked like me. You know, walk into a yoga practice and I would very rarely see people of colour. Leading the class, I'd very rarely see people of colour within the practice. Slowly, she was drawn in and started reading up on yoga's history before going to India to train to be a yoga teacher. And then I came back and I was teaching ad hoc in gyms, but I was teaching what I thought people wanted to practice. I could see what they wanted was a workout, like a relatively fast pace. We'll do like a little bit of meditation at the beginning, then we'll get straight into the poses because that's what people want. And I wouldn't dare chant, which is really sad because that's part of me, it's part of my culture. Angie now runs a course called Honouring the Roots of Yoga. I think it's important that people see what yoga actually is so that they're not culturally appropriating, but also so that they're seeing this magic part of it and they're experiencing these other realms of it. Angie's own story shows that the explosive interest in yoga, well, it's come at a cost. She's one of several yogis who would like to see yoga decolonised. It's not just mindful stretching. Yoga has always been political. Under British rule in India, it was both banned and used as a form of resistance to colonisation. That is a legacy that isn't wiped away by a sudden burst in popularity in the West. In fact, it's one that smarts even more. To my mind, the push to emphasise authenticity in yoga is totally understandable. 
And it's also a really important context to make sense of how yoga has become such a contested part of modern-day politics in India. Why Prime Minister Modi might make public, global efforts to reclaim it. But the thing is, some people argue that's not just what Prime Minister Modi is doing. So decolonial is not always good. Decolonial is not about decolonizing. It can sometimes be used by movements such as Hindu nationalists. And in Indian context, there are growing in number of intellectuals who are using decolonial to essentially say that India should be decolonized. And how do we decolonize India? Not by reducing Western influence, but by reducing Muslim influence. This is Professor Dibyesh Anand. We'll hear more from him shortly. And so they are taking decolonial as reducing both Muslim and Christian influences and secular influences and take it back to ancient Hindu culture. And again, we know that's very much a Hindu nationalist project. It's January 2014. India, the world's largest democracy, is in the throes of a hotly contested general election. The main opposition, the BJP, is challenging 10 years of rule by the Indian National Congress, a party dominated by the Nehru Gandhi dynasty. The BJP candidate is Narendra Modi. He's a Hindu nationalist politician and the chief minister of Gujarat. And he's a controversial figure, marred by allegations that in 2002 he condoned, or even allowed, anti-Muslim riots in his state that killed over 1,000 people. He's always denied any wrongdoing. Modi is standing on stage in Delhi's Talkatora Stadium. Next to him is a man with a black beard, long hair, dressed in orange. His name is Baba Ramdev. And Baba Ramdev is quite a character. He's a celebrity guru famous for reviving the popularity of yoga within India. Since the early noughties, his classes have been broadcast on TV. He's charismatic, not far from the type of Christian televangelist you might see in the USA. He has built a huge business empire selling ancient Hindu remedies and made-in-India products. So make no mistake, the crowd watching the stage in Delhi is there for Baba Ramdev, not Modi. An event to celebrate the anniversary of Yoga Guru Ramdev's trusts, but clearly also an opportunity for political statements from both sides. But it becomes Narendra Modi's first public rally in the capital. The BJP is clearly in election mode, wasting no time to pick up endorsements and support. As the two men hug on stage, the crowd cheers. In May 2014, Modi wins power in a landslide victory, the biggest win in three decades. Today, I would like to talk about it specifically that yoga is a invaluable contribution of our country, of our tradition. And one of the first things he does is he goes to the UN and makes a speech calling for an international yoga day. Let's come together and work towards international yoga day. Can you tell me about that speech, why it was important and kind of why people noticed it? So what he does is he goes to UN, but he also goes to other parts of the world to present himself as a leader of world's largest democracy and presents a benign picture of India. Dibyesh Anand is a professor of international relations at the University of Westminster and the author of Hindu Nationalism in India and the Politics of Fear. 
and yoga becomes very useful for it because yoga as you know is quite popular in different parts of the world yoga is seen as essentially something good for your well-being good for your health but there's also almost an association of yoga with ancient hinduism not present hinduism so modi by presenting himself and india as the land of the yoga what he does is he uses yoga for soft power of not india but hindu nationalist india in the speech modi calls yoga an invaluable gift of india's ancient tradition it's a clever pitch everyone likes presents right but the second part of this short sentence is just as interesting and we'll come back to it later ancient tradition for some hindu nationalists that ancient tradition means hindu anyway at the un modi calls for an international day of yoga and that is something james malinson our yogi at soas can't help but notice weeks later on the 11th of december 2014 he arrives in brussels to make his own pitch to the grand committee of the european research council It's the pinnacle of academic funding in the EU. A real kite mark on your studies if you can get it. He's hoping to get funding for the project of a lifetime. A team of 6 people, 4 in Europe, 2 in India, to study the roots of hatha yoga. And the timing of Modi's resolution works out pretty nicely for James. So I was able to go into this quite intimidating interview in in Brussels and at the end of my pitch saying you really I think you should support this project because look it's you know right now they're voting on it and they're bound to ratify it in the UN with the the most popular proposal ever. His pitch is the same day that the UN votes to launch a worldwide yoga day without a single objection. And uh, yeah so sure enough I got lucky and and got the grant. James had seemingly tapped into something that by 2014 appealed to everyone. he was realizing the capital in that appeal of yoga and he walked away with 1.8 million euros of funding for his research back in india narendra modi was realizing its political capital in the months following his election he appoints a minister of yoga he makes the government department devoted to traditional systems of healthcare including yoga a ministry in its own right And it's reported that Modi's government is interested in pushing for a geographical indication like champagne that would tie the practice to India. These moves play out on the global stage, yes, but they of course have an all-important internal audience in India. And it all fits nicely with the make in India agenda he's announced. It's a type of rebellion against the western monopolization of yoga. reclaiming India's stake in this new multi-billion dollar industry a rejection of cultural appropriation and beer yoga it was at prime minister narendra modi's behest that the united nations decided to declare the 21st of june as international yoga day and today india will lead 191 countries in these celebrations that idea of yoga being india's gift to the world is one that comes up again and again it's our gift to the world The very fact that United Nations has declared an International Yoga Day means India has gifted it to the world. And it plays well abroad. Yoga is seen as a symbol of health and peace. It's a smart piece of soft power, something that all governments and countries do. But back at home in India, that simple message can be read in other ways. Modi is careful to frame yoga as India's gift to the world. 
But Professor Dibyash Anand is clear what that actually means. Modi's ideology comes from the fact that since his childhood, he has been an activist of Rashtri Swayam Sevak Sangh. So RSS is essentially a Hindu right-wing paramilitary organization that was formed in 1920s. The RSS doesn't get involved in politics directly, but it has close ideological ties to India's ruling party, the BJP. So what they would say is, we are Indians, but India is essentially Hindu. Therefore, if you're Muslim or Christian, you're a suspect because your holy land, while your homeland might be India, your holy land is outside India. There will always be a suspect. Now, that's the ideology that they have and that's the ideology of Narendra Modi. So when, for instance, he speaks of yoga as Indian, that doesn't mean he say it's an Indian that includes Hindus, Muslims, Christians and many others where everyone is equal. Essentially, what he means is it's an India that's Hindu India. Now, that's for the outside audience. But if you hear him speak in India, he's very clear that India yoga is about our ancient culture. And ancient culture in Indian context is always a dog whistle politics. It refers to a pre-Muslim, pre-Christian India. Narendra Modi generally stays clear of explicit religiously charged statements. But his government has strongly appealed to and emboldened Hindu nationalists who believe in the supremacy of Hindus in India. That includes Baba Ramdev. The guru I told you about earlier is not just a yoga fanatic. He's also one of the faces of a new wave of Hindu nationalism. In this context, it's understandable why some religious minorities in India have found the push for yoga troubling. Because it's not just about encouraging voluntary yoga practice. Modi's government has tried to make yoga mandatory in schools. For instance, there's a whole thing of Surya Namaskar. So you play, pay respect to the sun. But the debate will start that why are Muslims not offering respect to sun god? Dibyash is talking here about sun salutations. Now Muslims might not, or Christians might not, they might like the sun, but they might not pay respect to sun as a holy entity. But you see, in Hindu context, sun is a holy entity. Surya Namaskar is connected to that. Yoga encourages it. Modi encourages it. And then if religious institutions and schools and colleges and other places are in a way forced to adhere to that part, essentially they are either going against their own faith or their own belief. And if they don't adhere to that, then they're called anti-national. Controversies over doing yoga in schools is not a new battle in India or elsewhere. There was actually a court case in the US about whether yoga in schools violated religious freedoms. It is a debate that has been going on for several years. Should schools be allowed to offer yoga classes? Prime Minister Modi has said publicly that yoga is not religious. Well, today, a state appeals court said yes. And that court in the US found the same. So why are so many of the people I've spoken to worried about how yoga is being used in India? They say that although Modi is careful with his language, they're worried about the political environment he's fostering. When minority groups raised concerns about International Yoga Day, a prominent BJP politician, who is both a yogi and a Hindu monk, told them to drown themselves or leave the country. There are fears that yoga is being used as a form of cultural nationalism, part of a wider project to make India a less secular country. To Dibyesh, yoga is being used as a Trojan horse. Do you think yoga has been weaponized? It's very being actively weaponized by Hindu nations in India and outside India. 
It's being weaponized to transform and in a way uh, blunt the criticism of that Modi might be getting. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's 2016, and Narendra Modi is overwhelmingly popular in India. James Mallinson, meanwhile, is busy with his EU-funded Hatha Yoga project, looking for the origins of the physical yoga that's now so recognisable around the world. He's in India doing fieldwork. I'd read about this gate, this decorated archway in an old city in Gujarat, and it was an obscure 1950s article written in Hindi about these 12 statues of ancient famous yogis, well, ancient sort of thousand-year-old, the, the first ones are recorded. And we were heading up to Ujjain in my old Jeep. I had this 20-year-old Belair Mahindra Jeep, which is great. Thing. I had loads of adventures in, so we were trundling along in that. I just, I'd looked at the map and thought, hey, this, this town's on the way, let's go and have a look. So he and his colleague, Daniela Bevilacqua, took a detour to the Mahudi Gate in Dabhoi. And so we got there, and sure enough, these were great, wonderful, these, um, these, these statues of these 12 yogis. But then Daniela, it was, looked up. She was the first one to spot. Up in the eaves, or whatever you call it, of a stone gateway, there were 84 yogis, of, of which about a dozen were doing complex balancing postures, headstands and so forth. They had just found clear evidence of Hatha Yoga. The physical poses we might recognise today, carved into an ornate but largely ignored historic gateway in the middle of a noisy road. So we were just bowled over by this. It was a super exciting discovery. The statues are vital pieces of a jigsaw which James was putting together and which challenges the direct link drawn by some between a form of yoga practised in ancient India and the postural yoga that's popular today. And they, they're much the oldest by probably nearly 300 years, the oldest such depictions of, of complex yoga postures. Mm-hmm. 
There's a video James filmed when he returned to Dabhoi the following year. Um, I came here in March last year. Um, and it's amazing to see. It's a relatively narrow gateway, thought to have been built in 1230. There are scooters, bicycles and rickshaws flowing through, a goat wanders past, and above all this is a set of figures, or yogis, carved out of stone almost 800 years ago. Actually, what I used to think was that the physical practices of yoga, the sort of things that now globally recognise as being yoga practice, so the sort of balancing postures and headstands and so forth, they, I used to think they were probably two, two and a half thousand years old and then for some reason started getting written down about a thousand years ago. But now the, the weight of evidence is such that I think that something new happened a thousand years ago in India. Because up to that point, there's only evidence of people sitting to meditate or doing what's called mortifying the body, which might mean lying on a bed of nails or holding an arm in the air for years on end. The carvings provided one form of evidence of the emergence of physical yoga. But that's not all the team found. They were also looking at manuscripts. So microfilm copies of the manuscript were obtained by a professor from Harvard in the 90s, and apparently the manuscript has now disappeared, probably gone back to Tibet, so very lucky to get those copies at all. And it took me a few years of pestering him as well to get him to send me the, 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 the scans. I was very pleased to get hold of them in the end. Not least because he had uncovered the first text to teach physical yoga. And not only that... There's a text called the Amrita Siddhi, which we just published, that that was written by Buddhists, which is a real surprise. Really didn't see that one coming at all. The opening verse is in praise of this goddess who, during that period, was only worshipped by Buddhists. So that's kind of absolute in a clear, dead giveaway that the, the text was, was written by Buddhists. So, the first textual evidence of physical yoga is contained in a Buddhist text, not a Hindu one. That doesn't mean that only Buddhists were doing physical yoga practice, but they were the first to codify it, they were the first to write it down, and they used certain quite esoteric items of terminology and so forth to describe it that were then used in all the subsequent non-Buddhist texts, Hindu texts. How, how did that feel when you found that out? What was that like to realise that? Uh, one of the most enjoyable things, I think, in research and scholarship is suddenly having to change your mind hugely and then everything like falls apart and then has to come back together again. And, yeah, that's hugely exciting. For an academic, having to change the way you think about a centuries-old practice is undeniably exciting. But what James discovered within the text runs counter to the narrative being promoted by Modi's government. Modi's government wants to tell a story of yoga that doesn't change, that predates Muslims or Christians or the influence of any other nations and is largely Indian or Hindu. Even if the evidence says otherwise, even if it means rewriting history. There's a thing called the Common Yoga Protocol, which is a document they put out to go with the International Day of Yoga, which at the beginning says exactly that, that you know, yoga is Indian's gift to the world. So far, so benign. But the document doesn't just say that. It frames where yoga comes from. It's come straight from the Indus Sarasvati civilization, okay, which is what the Hindu nationalists call the Indus Valley civilization, which flourished 2600 to 1900 BC. And here's where it gets political. 
But the fact that they put Sarasvati in there means that they're trying to say that one of the rivers, that the Indus River was the Sarasvati River, or there's a more complicated argument there. They want to identify that culture as Hindu, which scholarly consensus is totally against. You know, there's no, no proof of that whatsoever. And at the same time, in the same few paragraphs of this protocol, they're portraying yoga as this tool of great therapeutic benefit. So effectively, they're saying it's a 5,000-year-old 5, method of, of making yourself healthy, presented by Hinduism to the world. An investigation by the international news organisation Reuters found that after the 2014 election, Modi's culture minister appointed a committee of Indian scholars, supposedly with the aim of rewriting Indian history and updating school curriculums along the lines of what James just mentioned. In that context, ancient India becomes a knowledge source for the world, discovering scientific marvels such as plastic surgery thousands of years before they arrived in the West. Reports of this Hindu-first version of history caused controversy, and the government denied that they were seeking to rewrite history at all. But Narendra Modi, who was re-elected with a thumping majority in 2019, well, he wouldn't be the first leader to try it. It's basically page one in the Nationalists or Populists playbook. What's that George Orwell quote? Whoever controls the present controls the past. Take Xi Jinping. Rewriting China's history and his role in it has become a crucial part of his ideological and political framework for China's future. In Hungary, Viktor Orban is busy replacing statues of anti-Soviet heroes as he grows closer to Vladimir Putin. In India, yoga poses are being filmed and codified. Start with long sitting posture. On India's Ministry of Yoga website, I can learn how to do key poses. In the front. Palm resting on the ground, fingers pointing forward. To be honest, the videos are really good. So I still find myself thinking, it's just yoga, right? We're talking about a prime minister who is encouraging people to take part in 20 minutes of physical poses, meditation and breathing exercises. Fingers pointing downward. Keep the upper arms in line. Hi, this is Shaina Chudasma Munoth popularly known as China NC. I am the national spokesperson for the Bharatiya Janata Party, a fashion designer by profession, a politician because of my passion, and a yoga freak because of my obsession with yoga. That's Shaina NC, a spokesperson for India's ruling BJP party. She's speaking to me on the phone from the campaign trail in Goa, one of five states heading to the polls this month in local elections that are expected to test the strength of Modi's popularity. When I put it to her that there may be a darker side to Modi's framing of yoga, the response was upbeat. So yoga, I think, is India's contribution to the world. I think yoga should be a part of every curriculum because it helps you mentally, physically, and just gives you the balance that you require in this fast-paced life. Narendra Modi's approach to yoga was, she said, an example to us all. Well, I think he's a living example of somebody who, being extremely busy despite that, takes out his one hour every single morning for yoga. And he's always propagated that yoga for wellness has raised the morale of the people. I don't think yoga is Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Christian. Yoga is practice. And yoga is commitment. 
if you just take our prime minister as an example of somebody who's been practicing yoga you won't you view yoga as hindu you will use it as inclusive i mean do you think it's understandable why some people might think that it's being presented as kind of a, a religious practice and that they might feel uncomfortable doing that because they're say muslim or christian no i don't think yoga can be aligned to any caste creed community it's uh, documented that yoga was developed by the rishis the sages who documented it in practice and every segment and section of society has availed of the positives of yoga so let's not make this some kind of a religious or political movement because it's not it's hard to argue against isn't it but i guess i'm going to try because i think like me you'll probably recognize something in shina nc's responses and modi's subtle nods dog whistles they understand how this will be heard how it plays out in the broader context of india's political situation this is a country where the government has introduced a bill that offers fast track citizenship for migrants from neighboring countries but not if they're muslim where as i'm writing this Violent clashes are breaking out between Muslim and Hindu students over a ban on hijabs in schools. The concept of who and what counts as Indian is clearly fraught. And just feel the weight of your body on the ground underneath you. James Mallinson's discovery that physical yoga first appears in India about a thousand years ago and is first taught in a Buddhist text should challenge the narrative that yoga is an ancient gift to the world practiced by Hindu sages for 5000 years but it probably won't the facts won't get in the way backs of the palms and in the grand scheme of things as kashmir and assam state are added to the watch list of ngo genocide watch yoga might not seem so important exhale through the mouth it's a nuanced point one I've struggled to get my head around and make sense of. But it's about the power of the stories and the myths nations tell about themselves. How they seep into the broader conversation. And let your breath come back to being steady and slow. Modi has tried to use yoga to present himself as a symbol of peace and unity on a global stage. It masks the fact that he's using the same mechanism to spread division at home. This episode was written and reported by me, Claudia Williams, and by Katie Gunning, who's also the producer. The sound design is by Carla Patella. The executive producer is Kerry Thomas. Additional fact-checking by Xavier Greenwood.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. A centuries-long story about the origins of yoga is, I have to say, very slow news. And if you like it and you'd like more of these kinds of stories, then join us here at Tortoise, the newsroom where we make this podcast. You can join us as a member and, in fact, you can be my guest. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. Thank you and see you next week.